Welcome to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. Well, last time we left you off, we were discussing the tank-brained Raban, the beast Raban, Matthew, and the Baron was thinking about that muscle-minded tank brain and uh, and how... Uh, how ruthlessly he's going to crush the people of Arrakis. Yes. No, 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 Roban. Squeeze. 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 <laughs> uh, which brings us to our next order of business, which we're calling Chapter 27. And uh, for Chapter 27, we, uh, we are going to dive right back in because we know that uh, Paul and Mom are on the run, correct? Should we start with the, uh, our little uh, intro here? Yeah, yeah, I do believe so. I mean, our our boy and our lady, they are running for their lives. They're in the midst of a chase as we open this chapter. Uh, do you want me to read this one? Over? Sure. <laughs> it's, it's a, a pretty long heavy one. lifting. Can you handle it's it? A, I think I got this. Uh, boy, because I think we also, this is like the shortest chapter opening that we've come across so far. And I also think we have the longest chapter opening in this. I know. Uh, it's fucking funny. All right. Chapter 27. At the age of 15, he had already learned silence. From A Child's History of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. What was the middle part again? You lost me. Uh, it was a <laughs> comma. It was a comma. <laughs> the comma. Okay, we got it. We're back. We're back on track. Awesome. So this is Paul piloting through the storm, Matthew. He's using his mentat awareness and trying to keep him and the Lady Jessica from splattering all over the dunes down below. Yes, indeed. We know that he has managed to lose a couple of tails, uh, but now they have found themselves in the midst of a storm. And this, uh, this chapter and a few of these upcoming chapters here are very cinematic. There's a lot of, of action. There's a lot of things happening. So it's going to be uh, a bit of us probably discussing some of those descriptions, but uh, yeah. we may be hard-pressed to spend a ton of time on some of these types of chapters. But right. this is him doing his thing. This is him going a bit mentat on us, even though there were times where I thought, is he also kind of going Benny Gesserit on us as well with this awareness piece? Yes. No, that... That is something I really noticed in these chapters is what we're seeing in Paul now is the blending of mm-hmm. those of of the Bene Gesserit training, the Mintat training, and his new awareness, which is separate from both of those. Um, but it's all starting to coalesce together, it seems like, especially in these moments of, of the need for survival. Um, because to be honest, I feel like, you know, I, I agree with you because I think um, there's so much action and there's so much movement in these chapters that for one, it feels very different from the first third of the book. Mm. Um, and I feel like it it signals a, a pretty big change in the book that we are going to go from more pre, pre-text and setup and, and dialogue to a lot more movement, a lot more ferocity, because it seems like that's where we're headed now. I mean, we're heading into Fremen territory, and life is fucking different. <laughs> that is for sure. <laughs> it's fraught with danger, Matt. And, and the other thing is that we have gotten ourselves here through the setup, and the conflict has bubbled over like a pre-spice mass, and here we are. We are in conflict, which is physical. People are fighting for their lives. 
uh, in the in, in in at least a couple of these chapters coming up here. Um, the of course uh, situation has been laid before these characters, and now they have to move, they have to run, they have to fly, they have to escape, they have to endure the elements that make Arrakis such a deadly place. Yeah. And yeah. the young Paul decides, I think I'm going to bank this sucker into the vortex. He's, he decides, into the vortex we go. Much to mom chagrin, Jessica exclaims, Paul! As he banks into the storm. And he even says, or he thinks, I must find the right vortex. So imagine he's in this thopter. Imagine he's flying over this desert world. And imagine they're diving into this storm. And he's looking for a particular vortex, right? A particular right. vortex meaning just the, the whirling air, the, the whirlwind, to, 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 to maybe use layman's terms. He's looking for a particular pocket that he can use. And some of this descriptive text, Matt, is a must. The vortex turned them, twisting, tipping. It lifted the thopter-like ch- uh, chip on a geyser, spewed them up and out, a winged speck within a core of winding dust lighted by the second moon. That's awesome. Like, yeah. <laughs> just the visual of them getting popped out, it just, boom, it spews them like a geyser. So... A lot of times when we think of vortexes or whirlwinds, we think of being sucked down, right? The old pulling us down to the ocean. But in this case, I think it shoots them up and out over the storm and, and, and out. Because at this point, Paul looks down and he sees this dust-defined pillar of hot wind and how it disgorged them. This is all of the language used by Herbert here. And Jessica right. is like, we're out of it. She whispers, I like that. I hope... I hope there are moments, and I know it's really on the actor for when this comes to the theater or, or home streaming, whatever it's going to be, but these moments where characters, the way they might say something, you have this frenetic action, like you said, um, you keep using that term movement, which I think it works well, and then just this whisper from Jessica that she says, we're out of it. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That quiet moment of, boom, you're, you're rejected from the storm. It's almost like if you've experienced a hurricane, when you're in the eye of the hurricane and everything is calm. And you're just waiting for the other part of the storm to come through and whack you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's wild. And it's just such a great way of displaying a character kind of like exhaling without saying that they're doing it. <laughs> just thought, yeah, okay, that's a great point. That's good writing, right? <laughs> right, right. And I mean, and I, I really enjoyed Jessica's thought about the situation and thought about them emerging from the storm when she says, it was like the litany. Mm. We faced it and did not resist. The storm passed through us and around us. It's gone, but we remain. Um, Because I really, I like this notion too of sort of relenting to the storm and letting it just take you a little bit and not trying to fight so hard against it. Like that's part of what Paul senses when he's kind of making these calculations is that I can just ride it. I can ride this storm out. I don't have to like fight against it with every movement of the ship. Mm. There's, um, there used to be these public service announcements up here. You know, I'm in Massachusetts on the South coast and we have some beaches on the Atlantic ocean. And there's undertoes and riptides can be a big deal out here. And a riptide, if you get caught in a riptide, it drags you out to sea. And what yeah. most people do is they, they swim against the riptide, they exhaust themselves, and then they perish. And what you're supposed to do, and take this with a grain of salt, I'm not an expert. What I hear, <laughs> better to say, what I hear you're supposed to do is let the riptide take you out and then swim parallel to the beach until you find the pocket not in the riptide, then you just swim into shore. 
yeah. versus trying to pound your way through the riptide. And that's what they would say. They'd say, nope. You gotta you stop doing that. You gotta you gotta turn and, and go parallel, go parallel with the sand. They say, and then you 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 bypass that portion of the riptide and you turn and swim in. And um, I've I've fortunately never been stuck in a riptide, so I can't say with any certainty. But but it's uh, it's that thing of relenting, knowing when to the the flow, the jujitsu, the the giving way, as it were, instead of. We, we this is a common theme in Dune, where giving in is sometimes how you get through. It surrender may lead to success in a sense. It's right. it's uh, it's we, because this book deals so much with the the nature you know man and man against nature that classic conflict. It's nice to see that that's they're very much a natural conflict. At times, sometimes you fight for your life, right? If, a, if you're being attacked by a jungle cat or something. <laughs> but um, but the other thing in that is slow on attack, fast on defense, right? It's it's almost like you have to let the blade do its work, sort of slowly. It's not this vigorous attack to penetrate the shields. It's uh, very counterintuitive. Most people attack with great ferocity and speed <laughs> and then to, to turn that on its head. Whereas this, you're just like, let's just power through and get through the storm. And they don't, they surrender to it. Like you said, not only do they surrender to it, but they are in the storm for four hours. Yeah. Yeah. Described as feeling like a lifetime to Jessica. Think about that for just a minute, four hours in the storm, you're flying in the storm and this isn't, you know, this isn't turbulence in a jet up above the, you know, up, up above the clouds. This is a small atmospheric craft that probably has a low flight ceiling and it's battling this powerful dust storm, the sand storm, I guess would be a better way to say it. Right. Makes you even wonder how thick the walls of this thing are. You're like, I know, I know. How much damage can this thing be handled? <laughs> can it just be throttled for four hours? Right. Yeah, we know there is really no defensive capability. Minor hull. I mean, they get if if they if they shoot each other, it's that's a wrap. But right. it is speaking of Matthew, it is damaged. Paul doesn't like the way the thing sounds. He knows that there's a problem here, and uh, they realize we have to put down. Yeah, and I I love this moment of of Paul killing their speed against the sand basically skipping like a rock over the over a body of water skipping over the dunes on the underside of their thopter to kind of slow it down he uses their air brakes for as long as he can but then just starts you know sliding it against the sand basically yeah absolutely and um again the litany of fear they're they're both going through it paul himself i shall not fear he has that moment of considering cause and effect he was alive despite malignant forces, and he felt himself poised on a brink of self-awareness that could have been without the litany's magic. That could not have been without the litany's magic. Words from the Orange Catholic Bible. What senses do we lack? What senses do we lack that we cannot see or hear another world all around us? I like this. I like the training. I like the conditioning that surfaces inside of Paul as he contends with this life and death struggle. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Every different things rising to the surface as he needs them. Yep. They managed to get the craft down, Matthew, and uh, it is a run for the rocks in the instant we're stopped, says Paul. And uh, they have to get cracking. They've got water. They've got still suits. They need food. 
and uh, they're confident they can they can get pretty pretty far if they can if they can just find food and maybe even fremen. Right, right. That's that's really their hope is that perhaps we will come across fremen and they can help us survive. <laughs> because as competent as the two of these you know these two characters are, I think even they know that making it out here is is a stretch. Of course, and this gets back to the missionaria protectiva, which is the idea that perhaps Jessica can utilize this indoctrination of the Fremen to get the help that she requires. Because yeah. as a as a refresher, the Missionaria Protectiva is that arm of the Bene Gesserit that says we're we're myth builders. We're we're myth builders. We're we're building essentially de facto religions on these planets that point to us so we can exploit those beliefs should we need help from the planet. Pretty wild. Right. I love that. <laughs> That's still I, I'd have said it before, so I don't want to harp on it for too long, but that is one of the most interesting concepts in sci-fi I've ever come across. Like, I love that idea. I think that's so rich and interesting. Yeah. And, uh, and in they go. I know there's this point where they discuss they're going to, that the, the, the author will be taken by a sandworm, which will be good in so far as it will remove evidence of their passing. Because you got to imagine that there's going to be more thoughters coming. Once the sandstorm lifts, the Harkonnen are going to be strafing the desert, looking around, search parties, seeing if they can locate Paul and, and Jessica, even though they're pretty sure that they're going to be dead. I mean, if you see a guy fly into a sandstorm, you go, oh, he's dead. <laughs> it's just, yeah. you don't get through that. But then again, not everybody's Paul Atreides. Indeed, indeed. But no, we do we do see their ornithopter get completely taken by a worm. And I, mm-hmm. I really liked how fast that happened. I was expecting, to be honest, <clears throat> you know, Learning what we've learned from everything so far, I expected that, okay, they're in the deep desert now. There will be a worm, you know, the ornithopter crashing all hard like that into the sand, definitely going to bring out one. But I was thinking they were going to make it to the rocks and, and, and watch it happen from there. That shit hits and destroys their ornithopter completely and starts pursuing them before they're even able to, to get anywhere. <laughs> like they're still running as it's headed towards them. So I, w- I was shocked at how fast the worms are as well. It's amazing because it, it really cements the threat. If they're, ra- if they're too random, it becomes a, wow, I can't believe more of the desert isn't settled. It becomes, yeah. the spice is such a deadly thing to harvest. It, be- it, it, it really makes you feel the pressure of trying to maintain some type of manufacturing collection or harvesting would be a better way to say, and then manufacturing process for the spice melange. It's, it's dangerous, but insanely profitable because of course without it there's no space travel yeah yeah pretty damn pretty damn crucial for all of commerce across the universe and uh, you know paul notes here matt it's bigger than a guild spaceship he's referring to the worm i was told worms grew large in the deep desert but i didn't realize how big he says so you know imagine this this moment where this mountain of desert erupts and, and try to put yourself in the position of observing because you know they manage to find this escarpment of rock they climb up and they're looking out at the thopter and this worm just hammers it and you see just the desert moving it looks like it must look like uh, the, uh, like a giant wave in the ocean except this is a giant wave in the sand and when that sucker breaches it is hell's bells <laughs> god just the sheer size of it, too, is so... I mean, we get another great scene of the worm later in, in the sure, chapters we're going to sure. cover. 
Um, but I love this tease of just the fact that if they happen fast, they will find you, <laughs> they will catch up with you, and they are so much bigger than than most people even realize. Even a lot of people on Arrakis, right? So, you know, the the Fremen are the only people who live this deep in the desert, so they're the ones who see the worms of this size. One of the things I like about this man is that sometimes when you when you read something that takes place in in a wooded area in a forest or or something of this nature that you hear birds and rustling of leaves and their sound. And then it grows quiet because a predator's near, right? That's always the telltale sign. You know, if you're, if you're maybe uh, running a D&D game, you tell your players, this, this forest is, is too quiet, right? <laughs> One of the things I like about this with the sand, and in, in, in it's such a, it has to be very, the forest I know, I know the woods. I can wrap my head around the woods, it's very difficult to wrap your head around the desert as a place, as a place that you have to traverse and the desert as a place that you can put something compelling drama in because it seems so empty, right? It's very difficult, which is why this book fascinates me. One of the many reasons it fascinates me is this ability to conjure action and movement in the desert. And that's really highlighted here when the worm is is there and then it's gone in just a little rustling of sand as it fades away into the horizon. And the idea that this desert just returns to quiet. It's yeah. this rumble and then it's quiet again. And it's always quiet. And that's almost one of the advantages of of that is you know you you get an inkling. I mean, I'm I'm assuming it's the vibrations first, but just this idea to give the desert a it's very much a characteristic a character sometimes we say oh the woods sherwood forest is a character yeah maybe or the desert <laughs> is a character right it it is a that's compelling to me because i would be very hard pressed to tell a story in a desert and make it visually appealing and i guess that's why you throw in sandstorms and escarpments and little encampments and then you throw in some a bit of vegetation and maybe you throw in the sandworms. It makes it this, it's seemingly much more vibrant than you might imagine. Right, right. And I mean, one of the things I've enjoyed about this book to kind of step out into a meta level of just the book itself, like Frank Herbert himself was uh, an ecologist Mm -hmm. and good thing that he was because Mm -hmm. damn, does the man have so many specific landscape words to describe the desert. Mm. Um, that's something I, I've really enjoyed about this. i like, I, I keep looking up words that I'm reading because I'm like, I don't quite know what that is. Interesting, um, yeah. The, the, the only other writer I can think of for me personally that I, I've had that experience with is Cormac McCarthy describing deserts. Then, you know, it's just so many words for even different types of sand, drum sand, you know, all these, all these new threats and, and sure. descriptions that we get, I think are fascinating. I mean, I, he is certainly... Frank Herbert certainly had the specific knowledge to be able to kind of breathe life into the desert. Because I think we so often think of the deserts as a place devoid of life and devoid of character even. Exactly. This this big, flat, empty nothingness, and there's sand. And that's kind of like all we think about it. And this, the the way the deserts of Arrakis feel in this book, they feel lived in. They feel they feel complicated and and interesting. Um, And 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 they seem to when you have a character like like Kynes, you you seem to understand that his expertise really matters, right? It's if you were to dumb this down, you'd say, okay, it's a big giant desert. You need water, or you're dead. Like who needs who has to be an expert on that? 
And you go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. There's a lot going on here. And the fact that that's conveyed in the writing, I think, is very impressive. And we really see it here. We really see it when our characters have to traverse it. Yes, dude. I actually – so the paragraph, on, at least in my book, uh, begins on page 395. Hmm. She, noted, she noted presently how their passage became a matter of the immediate and particular. Dude, right. I think this shit is so well-written and so interesting it actually got me to write. I ended up writing. I kind of wrote out my thoughts about this because of how it struck me. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll read that now. Um, so Paul and Jessica have their focus shifted back to the matter of survival, literally at hand. Right. They have to grope, grope through reality both quickly and meticulously in order to live. We see them ferociously climbing up and along sharp rock faces and along unsteady, condemning ground. We begin to see the outlines of a Fremen lifestyle the unflinching focus their lives utterly demand, how sharp they must always be, how self-aware an adversary, how unhesitating in their strike. Absolute precision is their necessity. We realize on a more visceral level how formidable they must be, the very proof in their being alive at all. Um, and I think that's what Paul and Jessica are, are learning here and, and right. coming into contact with is if this is what the Fremen have to deal with and have to live through every day, like, you know, just the absolute precision of how you have to even just move across the land is taxing and it's a struggle and you have to pay attention to everything you're doing at all times. You can't slip up because you might fucking die. Um, that creates a very specific type of person. Um, and I think, I, I, I think it's such a cool way of showing where both Paul and Jessica are literally headed, like we're headed towards the Fremen, but also to show how the Fremen live and how that's probably, you know, changed their, their character, their, 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 their culture even. Mm. There's, a, there's a few moments in that, and that's well done, by the way, where, they, where, we, where we get into rhythms, and I like the yeah. idea of rhythm. I like the idea of using a, a time sequence, a, a way to keep time, so to speak, in rhythm insofar as the terrain enforced its own rhythms, I believe, is one of the lines in this. And that I, I like that because you, as you said, it's the ultimate in the test for adaptation, right? Yeah. You adapt to the rhythm given to you. You don't dictate the rhythm. That's not, you don't decide that out here. You, you force yourself to find the rhythm and work within it or you perish. Yeah. It's neat. Exactly. No, I love it. I love it. But yeah, all of these questions, do we go around? Do we go through? Do we go over? Do we go under? Do we move quickly? Do we move slowly? They don't quite have the expertise and train as much as you want until you're out there. It's not going to be, like you said, here are two competent people, but, but really, what are we dealing with here? Hmm. <laughs> right. A big, open, vast place that will kill you with no hesitation. <laughs> mm, absolutely. And uh, there's some other moments here. It occurred to her that the mercy, it occurred to her, speaking of Jessica now, that mercy was the ability to stop if only for a moment. There was no mercy where there could be no stopping. <laughs> ah, it's such a good line. It's great. <laughs> uh, but this is an arduous journey. I mean, they 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 move as well as they can, and it gets to a point where you know Jessica starts to think about her son a little bit here on this journey. They, you know, she she's she's concerned with his. I guess she can feel the shifting attitude, this immediacy to him, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And dude, there's even um, I, I kind of went past it, but there's an interesting moment of Paul dealing with his prescient vision 
where he sees that it's actually imperfect, that he's noticing that the vision he had of the desert laying out before him is actually different from the real desert as he stands there. Right. Um, and noticing some of the limitations of that, that vision as well. And, and, and this is happening at the same time as, like you're saying, his, you know, his mother Jessica is starting to just fear him. Fear the, she says, mm-hmm. I fear the, his strangeness. I fear what he may see ahead of us, what he may tell me. Um, and I think I, I, my feeling on that too is that that is also just a fear of, of knowing what the future is going to be, of, a, a literal fear of the future and the fact that you're standing next to somebody who might be able to tell you just flat out what the future is. Mm. I, she feared his strangeness is crazy. That, that tells you a lot about she knows who her son is. She knows who the Bene Gesserit are. She knows what Mahayim has said. And so far, things have been playing out. And his shifting attitudes as he starts to become a man, it is very much person. The future is personified in her son as it always has been, according to prophecy. And that's unsettling. Yeah. <laughs> you could say <laughs> you could say that, to, to say the least. Exactly. Especially a prophecy that you're so aware of. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, they, they do have to stop. They do stop. They do rest. They do eat a little bit. And uh, Jessica, of course, is quite wary with travel at this point. They briefly discuss Gurney, and uh, that's when the, the fears is strange in the line comes up. But they realize they have to cross a, a wide expanse of desert. They've, they've run out of solid ground and rock faces, and now they have to cross the open desert. And as you've described earlier, Matthew, worms will come, and they will come quickly. Yeah, yeah. And this is where we we finally get to see them start to, you know, we've talked about it before in this book, but we we haven't seen any characters have to proceed across the desert the desert without rhythm, without a rhythm to their steps and having to break their steps. Um, you know, but the the book describes it as, you know, pausing, wait, drag, drag, step, pause. Like they have to just break up the way that you walk because there can be no repetitive pattern to it. Because that's what draws out the worms. And I didn't even, to be honest, I didn't even think about how strenuous that would be until reading it here. And being yes. like, that would be strenuous and awkward to have to pause yourself, drag yourself. Like, it's such a it's such an unnatural way of walking that it would be taxing. Yeah. Yeah, if you, th- if you start to think about it in those terms, and the things we so take for granted, take everything else, take all of the elements out, you could make it a nice temperate day, say 73 degrees Fahrenheit with no humidity. And you're going to be hard pressed to literally walk without rhythm for a long period of time. You, all we do is search for the rhythm. That's why I love the talk of rhythm yet again. All we do is search for rhythm. We are naturally inclined towards rhythm as people. That's not to say everybody has rhythm. We know that that's not the case. Just go to a dance floor sometime. But we are inclined to, to locate it a little bit. And, and even in so far as the way we're ambulatory, we, we have this locomotion which dictates this is how we walk, then jog, and then run, and then slow down and walk again. And this is something that infants begin to understand. This is prim, the, the, the primal nature of what it takes to survive is your ability to move. Okay, there's a reason prey animals come out and can run within like hours so they don't get eaten. (laughs) There's a reason. There's an evolutionary reason for this. So now that we've honed this human machine over all this time, Matthew, 
and we've taught it. This is the rhythm of the way you walk since you were since you were a baby. Everyone before you, this is how it happens, and this is how we this is how we get from here to there. Now I'm interrupting that, and I'm telling you, I tell you the rhythm. That's something we said earlier. We tell you the rhythm. You don't tell us the rhythm, right? <laughs> <laughs> so our our propensity to search for the rhythm is denied to us by the exacting demands, the immediate demands of the desert, in this case, a worm. But as I said a second ago, take a temperate setting. It's beautiful, a little bit overcast, no humidity. You got shorts and t-shirt on. It's going to take you a while to walk a mile without rhythm, let alone a few hundred yards. I said, I said that backwards. You're only going a few hundred yards, but it's going to feel like you're going over a mile, right? I mean, and aren't they, maybe I'm wrong about this, but aren't they going something like four kilometers? <laughs> yeah, in a, an hour. Here? Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. I always remember that from the movie, um, The Fugitive, where Tommy Lee Jones has that, he's briefing everyone when they're trying to catch the Harrison Ford doctor, I forget his name, uh, but they're, he's, like, he's got an average foot speed of four miles per hour. That means he can be this far away at this point. Right, he's doing the U.S. Marshals thing. And uh, <laughs> when they said four kilometers, which of course is much less than four miles, I thought, well, it's the desert. <laughs> this, what do you think you're going to do, jog through the desert? No, you're not going to do that. <laughs> no. I like how Paul, you know, as he's studying the desert here, he gets this sense of this pervasive terror of the worms. I love that because that's realistic. No matter what the litany of fear has taught you, you do have this pervasive terror at the thought of the worms. But what I like about it is the way he finds it odd. It's not, I'm afraid of the terror. I'm afraid of the terror thoughts. I find them odd. That's already showing this level of detachment. It's interesting. He's grown used to, to not having an emotional reaction already. Indeed. Well, dude, we, we got to get to the part uh, where old Jessica almost goes down. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah, exactly. Um, they put down the thumper, correct? They do. They put down the thumper. Um, actually, you know what? We might be jumping ahead a little bit. A little bit, I think, yeah. Yeah, because I think they put the thumper down after uh, they deal with the, 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 the sand cascade that the sand, completely yeah. <laughs> buries Jessica. The sand slide, as it were. Yeah, that shit is gnarly. Mm. Uh, the I, I, the I idea of having... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, just the idea of having, at best, one to one minute and 30 seconds, maybe, to get somebody out from under that sand before they die. Right. <laughs> like, it's such a tense moment. What I love about this moment of her going under, so they're crossing these rocks, and then she falls into what's called a, a sandslide. She's caught in it and, it, and it buries her instantly. And then Paul considers that she won't smother immediately. And that's when we get into Bindu suspension. Something Paul has to keep reminding himself not to panic because he really does, panic sets in a little for Paul. He's screaming for his mother. Of course, she went under. And the Bindu suspension is something we get to experience here, which is really, we've seen moments that you might be able to explain as less than supernatural, but this is one of those where we go, wow. This is cool. The idea that she can suspend or slow her body, so to speak, her, her heartbeat, everything, consume less oxygen, almost like a hibernation trance. Yes, that's, that's exactly how I imagine it. This idea of like slowing your heart rate down, almost like something like 
you hear about like monks being able to do sure, like that sure. that super fine control of of even your your supposed to be not conscious bodily uh, movements like but just mm. slowing everything down to where you, you the bare minimal amount of oxygen the bare minimal amount of heartbeats <laughs> and i like how when he ends up rescuing her she she tells him i knew you'd find me you know this pulling her out of the sand they they struggle they lose the pack at least for temporarily they end up getting it back but um it it causes them an issue they they consider right they they get the pack back they recover it i believe before they do yeah before they set back out but they, but they think their pack is missing and they start to consider well, what i love what i love about that moment too is that it's one of the only times that we see paul panic mm-hmm. like he actually when his when he realizes his mother has gone under right and it's a quick line you only the book actually really doesn't highlight it and it comes back later and makes you realize oh yeah he did do that um is that the book just says he turned dropped the pack and went to the you know to the sand to try and find yep. his mother Whereas in that moment, he shouldn't have dropped that pack because in the very next you know, second or so, sand slides over the top of that and, and now they've lost their main means to survival. And it's a, it's a real oversight for somebody with, you know, prescience. <laughs> exactly. And, his, and Jessica is actually the one who really calls him out on that at the end of this chapter. Yeah, she does, man. She says, uh, I got the quote pulled up here. She says, today you panicked. You know your mind and Bindu nervature perhaps better than I do, but you've much yet to learn about your body's pranamusculature. The body does things of itself sometimes, Paul, and I can teach you about this. You must learn to control every muscle, every fiber of your body. You need review of the hands. We'll start with finger muscles, palm tendons, and tip sensitivity. Come into the tent now. <laughs> she shows. So you're right. She does kind of scold him a little bit, even though the desired result came to be, which is not only was Jessica recovered, but so was the important pack. I mean, life saving pack, to be frank. But it was enough for Jessica to realize a flaw in his game, which is at one point, as you were saying, he, he really does panic. I believe the language Herbert uses is digging at the sand like a wild man. <laughs> right, you can't right, be a just, wild man in the desert. <laughs> no, no. You'll expend all your energy. You'll exhaust yourself and you will die. Mm-hmm. But no, I also like this moment too on a character level because I think this is also, you know, Jessica, like we were talking about at the beginning of this chapter, is is unnerved by her own son at mm-hmm. this point. And kind of wary of of his, of the power that's growing within him and a power that she was aware of but didn't know the extent of and she's grappling with all of this and their roles have been kind of reversed like Paul's very much so taking the lead and she's following right and i feel like this is a moment of like all right mom is going to step up here i'm <laughs> i'm still your fucking mom all right exactly. you panicked you little bitch exactly like i still know shit you don't know all right get your ass in the tent <laughs> i'm so full benny jesuit trained here pal for real. She's an experienced woman. Take that Muad'Dib shit and take a hike. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's good stuff. That leads us to chapter 28. Yes. You got this one? Yes, sir. We came from Caladan, a paradise world, for our form of life. There existed no need on Caladan to build a physical paradise or a paradise of the mind. We could see the actuality all around us. 
and the price we paid was the price men have always paid for achieving a paradise in this life. We went soft. We lost our edge. From Muad'Dib conversations, Mother Princess Irulan, Matthew, we get soft, right? We once, we once we fend off the wolves and we figure out how to put thatch on top of the structure <laughs> to keep the rain out, we tend to put our feet up a little bit and we tend to relax. We tend to adapt to our surroundings. And when our surroundings become easy, we become soft. Yeah. And you know what's funny is that I feel like this... This opening is almost more of a comment on the last chapter than this one. Mm. Um, the idea of like we we see you know like again, <clears throat> Paul and Jessica dealing with the hardships of the desert and and being forced to adapt to that and forced to to overcome. Um, they are regaining their edge for sure. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? So in this chapter, we get some Gurney Halleck. And Tuek, the smuggler philosopher, or is it philosopher smuggler? <laughs> Who knows? Why not both, he might say. Why not both? Staben or Staban, I'm not sure how it's said. Uh, Tuek, son of Esmar Tuek. That is who we get to meet now. Now, we recall that Gurney went to see the smugglers. That's right. And that's where he has been, and that's where he is. And I love this right at the start. So you're the great Gurney Halleck. <laughs> Tuek's a great character, and he's so well done in this chapter. We, we don't know Tuek at all yet, but boy, do we really get a sense for this man by the time this chapter concludes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we even have, we go from him being a total stranger to being somebody that Gurney even is starting to respect by the mm. end of this one chapter. Yes. Halleck, of course, is thanking uh, Tuek because he says, hey, we received your help. Thank you. And right. that's when they right. sit down across from one another. But I like this. Uh, I like the way this is described. A ship-type bucket seat emerged from the wall beside the screens, and Halleck sank onto it with a sigh, feeling his weariness. He could see, this, he could see his own reflection now in a dark surface beside the smuggler and scowled at the lines of fatigue in his lumpy face. The ink vine scar along his jaw writhed with the scowl. <laughs> Him and that poor ink vine scar. Indeed. And uh, Halleck opens this. Halleck has an angle going into this conversation, and that's getting this guy's help to go after the Harkonnen. A lot of these remnants of the house of a lot of the remnants of House Atreides are bent on revenge. Yeah, and Gurney, <laughs> as I can imagine, as you can imagine, and Gurney is probably the most vengeful of the bunch. And uh, he starts with a soft open by saying, "Your men tell me your father is dead, killed by Harkonnens." Now, this is Halleck talking to Tuik the smuggler. Right. Which he thinks this is going to be a fucking slam dunk. Absolutely. Like, hey, look, they killed your dad. You ready to take up arms with me? Ready? <laughs> yes. And what happens? <laughs> it Dude, doesn't I, quite go this, the way Gurney hopes it does. This is such great dialogue between these two. Oh, it's so good. I mean, I mean uh, 2X reply to that very sentence from, from Halleck is just, by the Harkonnens or by a traitor among your people. <laughs> like... <laughs> Like, I don't know who to lash out at, and I'm not just going to start lashing out. And that's when some names come up. Thufir Hawad suspected the Lady Jessica. Ah, the Benny Jesuit witch, perhaps. But Hawad is now a Harkonnen captive. 
Uh, to which Alex says, I heard it appears we're deal more killing ahead of us. <laughs> I, I like how I like how Halleck. Uh, I, this is where Tuick begins calling Halleck "fighting man." He says, "What about you, fighting man?" He keeps calling him that, and I like that because he's using it as a little bit of a jab. It's a sign of respect, but also a jab because a yeah. lot of times when he refers to him as a fighting man, he's pointing out, "Is this your only tool? Can you yes. consider wisdom?" Right. Exactly. I think that's a great way of putting it. And it, it, what's so interesting about that, too, as far as how Gurney has been presented to us thus far in the book, is that he is a figure of wisdom for yes. Paul. Like, he is, he is a much older man. He's, he is a teacher. He is a guide. And he, his words stay with them. I mean, he, they were quoting Gurney in the last chapter. Like, <laughs> this guy, this guy is, is a much revered person. And now we have a smuggler who doesn't know him at all who has the freedom to question him a lot more and be like, mm, yeah, you're great at fighting, but th- is that it? <laughs> is that all you got? Because right. that's not going to cut it here. Right. Absolutely. How much fighting did the Harkonnen have to do to undermine the entirety of House Atreides? Not very. Not very much. They didn't have to do a ton. There was some dust-ups, but by and large, treachery won the day for the Baron. And... And, and 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 intelligence and cleverness and everything else and I like this I like that this is the moment where Halleck realizes oh we're not going to when Tua just sort of says listen we're not going to attract attention to ourselves and Halleck is but <laughs> he's like you and those of your men we've saved are welcome to sanctuary you speak of gratitude very well work off your debt to us. We can always use good men. We'll destroy you out of hand, though, if you make the slightest open move against the Harkonnen. God, that's got to be confusing for a man like Gurney Halleck, who's sitting across from a man that he knows had his father murdered by the Harkonnens, or or so he suspects. (laughs) But they killed your father, man, I think he says, right? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And then he quotes his father. He even says, "I'll I'll give you my father's answer to those who act without thinking. A stone is heavy and the sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than them both. Yep. <laughs> a, a fool's wrath can wreck everything. <laughs> yep. Yeah. There's, again, this is cropping up in this novel, this idea of control, uh, the balance between nature, how one responds, how do, uh, to determine if you are human or are you just an animal, Right. Animals react. They don't... Gurney is in that sort of animalistic, like, oh, we're hurt, let's lash out. That's what we're going to do. That's the primal, that's the right thing. And he might even, he might even, it might even go beyond primal. It might go into the thinking of notions such as justice. But at the end of the day, whoever's standing kind of wins, right? <laughs> right. That's right. why in, in Star Trek DS, DS9, the Jem'Hadar have the right attitude. They say, victory is life. <laughs> it's not death before dishonor. It's not today is a good day to die. It's nothing concerning honor. It's victory, period. And that's how my man Tuick is thinking. He's not thinking, oh, let's let's take these 74 men that Gurney has less and rush them, beat the crap out of them, get a nice big victory and plant our flag and be happy because he knows that that's not guaranteed you start pulling out Laz guns and Chris knives and blades and anything can happen. And, and, and well, the other 
the other thing I think that's important to remember that about this, and especially Tuick's perspective as a smuggler, somebody who works technically outside <laughs> of the law and is very much so used to thinking about how he fits into a world like this. Um, everything that's happened on Arrakis and now with the Harkonnens being in charge, that's all legal. Like, that's all official. It is recognized by the Empire. It is recognized by the Guild. Like, so we're talking about taking 74 guys who are now uh, basically outlaws as well um, and trying to overthrow what is now the legitimate, you know, hand controlling Arrakis. And he's like, that's not going to fucking work. Mm. Like the Empire, the Emperor would have would have reason to just crush them with a Sardaukar outright sure. because they're trying to overthrow what's what's been installed on Arrakis. He, he also has a contract with the Guild to it as a smuggler. And I like that. And, uh, and he says, listen, the guild requires that we play a circumspect game here. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he cautions Gurney, and he, and he tells him, there are other ways of destroying a foe. It, it, and you have to consider that. He also says, we aren't quite concerned. We don't really think the witch is the one you want anyway. So Tuik has inclinations that maybe Jessica isn't the traitor. At least that's what he lets slip. Yeah, yeah. No, he, I mean, he's basically saying that we don't know who's the traitor. You guys, you guys got hung up and were thinking that it was Jessica, and he's like, we don't know. Like, nothing pushes us one way or the other. We just right. know that there was a traitor. And I love that. I just like Tuick sh- <laughs> shrugged. This is academic. We think the witch is dead. At least the Harkonnens believe it. But he also is, we don't know. And I like that. Like you said, we don't know, and we're not going to make any assumptions about anything. Tuik is a very measured man, and I appreciate that about him. Yeah. Oh, dude, I love the line he has here where uh, Gurney says, you seem to know a great deal about the Harkonnens, kind of being sarcastic. <laughs> and he just goes, hints and suggestions, rumors and hunches. Like, <laughs> also being like, I'm not going to tell you how I know what I know or how much I know. Like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, and maybe I don't, and maybe you should relax, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> He's just so much more poised here. Yeah, he's he's outstanding. Um, but of course, this is uh, this is when the beast Raban comes up. Uh, we they're not sure the Duke is dead. They know they're they're not sure about the young master. They're not sure about the witch. Uh, I like how Halleck struggles to get the question out, wondering if Paul's alive. But um, Tuik says, "And Beast Raban, so they say, will sit once more in the seat of power." Here on Dune, the Count Raban of Lankavale, <laughs> Halleck asks. And we learn that he has done some damage to the Halleck yeah. family, hasn't he? I mean, we knew that, that Gurney hated the Harkonnens and had mm. very strong reason to do so. But here we learn that uh, it was Raban specifically who killed his entire family and fucked up his face and left the Inkvine scar. So, yeah, this is his, this is his nemesis. (laughs) Yeah. This is a great moment because this has to be one of the most emotional things for Halleck to deal with on any consistent basis. And when Tuick tells him one does not risk everything to settle a score prematurely, and Halleck is forced to say, I know, I know, with deep breaths, it's nice to see that he understands that. He understands that that is the case, that he can't, he know we know, Matthew, that Halleck knows, but what's the X factor here? Emotion. Yeah. Dude, I mean, and, and, uh, Tuek even says it, he goes, in your mood, I'm not sure we want you to stay. 
yeah. at this point. Yep. Flat out says it of like, you, you seem uh, emotionally unbound right now. I'm not sure if I can count on you. Right. Gurney gets this idea, oh, I'm going to let my men decide. And I like the way this conversation changes because he's saying, hey, I'm going to release my men from their bond. They can choose what they want to do. As long as Raban is on this planet, I'm staying. So Gurney's made up his mind. Raban's here. I stay. He does listen to Tuik insofar as that he's not going to go charging off, lay in wait. Revenge is dish best served cold. Pick your proverb. And he's going to chill. And he doesn't want to be responsible for his men. Now, that might seem like this really cool, honorable thing to do, but it's exactly what Tuik picks up on. You're trying to release yourself of responsibility of these men who've looked up to you for so long just because right now you're so mad and single-minded about Raban. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's not going to work. And I love that. I like how Tuik just reads that. And yeah, he, really he doesn't let him. He, he kind of says, hey, man, are you sure that's the way you want to go with this? <laughs> right. Right. And then, you know, there, there's another great moment of uh, an exchange of dialogue here where he says, Gurney says, then I'll accept that help and stay <laughs> until the day you tell me to revenge your father and all the others who, and then Tuik just cuts him off. Listen to me, fighting man. My father's water, I'll buy that back myself with my own blade. Yep. Like, I love how direct he is right there because he can tell that Gurney is going, well, it just looks like you're just not even committed to it at all. You don't even care about your father dying. And he's like, that's not it, dummy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I care that my father died and I'm going to get mine, but I'm doing it in a much more careful, much more calculated and a, with a longer term plan than you methodical right move slowly in the day of your revenge will come he says to him earlier that's precisely what he's trying to beat into gurney's head right now and yeah that's a great moment that he really tells him in in part of gurney's pitch here is i will help you avenge your father like blah 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 and all the other father he's trying to you know he it's a bit of demagoguery here which is let me try to appeal to the emotion of these people by pushing through what I want to happen, by appealing to their emotion. And he's just barking up the wrong fucking tree with this guy. (laughs) He will not be moved. No. No. And what I love about this is how Halleck sees nothing but Leto in this man at this point. He sees the leadership, courage, secure in his own position, in his own course, and... He can't help but respect Tuik. He can't help but respect that the man is in charge for a reason. He's the smuggler leader for a reason. And now we're seeing why. And, and Halleck is seeing why. And maybe Halleck had some friends among the smugglers. But, you know, Halleck's been working for Duke later for a long time. He sees the way people of the Imperium operate. And maybe he was thinking, oh, I'm going to come down here and get these rabble-rousers going. I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tell him what's what. And this guy's like, no, you're not. <laughs> no. And I like that. I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, editorializing there, but that's how I like to imagine it. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think that is mostly it. I think Gurney was a lot more sure of himself and, and, and didn't realize how much, how much Tuick is dug into his position here and, and knows the lay of the land just that much better than him. Hmm. Um, although one thing I find very interesting about Tuick in this chapter <laughs> I know is what you're that gonna he's, say. he's so perceptive. He is super intelligent, and like even the way Gurney describes him when he's starting to compare him to the Duke, where he's saying he's so you know composed. He has uh, how does he say it? He's secure in his position. Yes, um, and and that is what I think is very true about Tuick. But 
Tuick, like a lot of other people on Arrakis, <laughs> underestimate the Fremen. Yes. Like, or, or Arrakis itself. He says, he says Arrakis is our enemy. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Right. One, in, one enemy at a time. Is that it, eh? <laughs> that's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. But no, I mean, the, the way the way Tuick, I wouldn't say he writes off the Fremen, but he views them with some disdain. He says... Rumors, he sneered. Do you wish to choose now between me and the Fremen? We have a measure of security. Our own sea-etch carved out of the rock, our own hidden basins. We live the lives of civilized men. The Fremen are a few ragged bands that we use as spice hunters. So right. the way the way he characterizes them there is just that like, ah, eh, they're 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 tough, they're strong, but they're just a ragged couple of people, and they're mostly people that we use for our own ends. I have a theory Com- about that. Oh really? Yes. My theory is that this was a direct result of Baron Vladimir Harkonnen's leadership and how he routinely would say that about the Fremen. And we know that this smuggler here dealt with the Harkonnen. He had to have, right? He must know what they have presumed about the Fremen for this long. Because remember, it's only now that the Atreides are starting to go, oh, Fremen, that's... Desert power. Dad talked about desert power. Maybe that's what he's talking about. And he was. Duke Leto knew much more than... Vladimir's sentiment about the Fremen is echoed in Tuic a little bit, right? Maybe less disdain, but more underestimating or more... Ignorance is the best way to say it. He doesn't. He thinks there's not many. He's so wrong about that, according to what Leto believes and now Paul believes, right? Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's what it is. You know, for 80 years, the Harkonnens have been on Arrakis. So whatever, whatever guys, and I know smugglers get information from other channels, but by and large, they're probably here. And oh, yeah, they're just out there kind of doing their thing. There's not many of them. I wouldn't worry about them. What, are you going to go out there? Like, what do you, you don't know. And that's, that's just an ignorance to know what they are. And who knows? Maybe, maybe if they went out there, they'd get killed by the Fremen. Who knows? We don't really know. But he does just think of them as X, who they sometimes hire as spice hunters. And that's what makes this next part interesting because we have the knowledge of what they've done to not just Harkonnen, but Sardukar. And Tuik doesn't seem too receptive to that. No, no. He acknowledges that they're good fighters, but he just even says, well, the result of that is that they're being exterminated. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they killed Harkonnens. Like, they're going to be hunted down relentlessly. Yeah. And he believes they don't stand a chance. And he's seen the might of a major house of the Imperium and what it can do. He's a smuggler. He knows. And he knows probably a little bit about people who don't have a lot, but he's wrong on this one. Right, right. It's him. interesting to see how many people, even on Arrakis, just completely write off the Fremen. Yeah, probably because they stay so hidden and they don't have a lot of knowledge about them. Right. I've got to imagine at this point that that is an actual Fremen strategy, that they are Absolutely. trying to to be underestimated and to remain under the radar. And you have to remember, too, that a lot of the people in these villages seem to be very destitute. Remember the, the ringing of the water outside the Atreides door and how Jessica puts a stop to that. And in, in Paul being in the vehicle as they approach, and he's like, God, look at these people. They're just all like mumbling around and shit. And that's, 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 you're, you're not seeing the people out, out in the sketches. You're seeing the people gathered around these centers and they're destitute and trying. It's very different. You know, the, the, the Fremen are a very different bunch. 
but but largely underestimated. And I think they're probably just fine with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly what they want. Yep. He take he he suggests when the when the Sardaukar thing comes up, he's like, ah, rumors. What? I believe what I see with my own eyes. Uh, it's funny because that that works for Tuek, right? <laughs> and he's going to keep applying that philosophy even when it comes to the Fremen. So it's if we know in hindsight's twenty twenty for us because we know that he might not be right about that, even though he's got a solid grasp on the way to run his operation and what works and doesn't work and how he survived and how he's very smart about being, you know, tempered against all of these emotional uh, storms that come up with men wanting revenge and everything else. (laughs) Right, right. No, it's good. It's good. And he believes believes his men won't even need to be persuaded, like you were saying earlier, that Mm -hmm. they will follow him uh to the ends of the earth <laughs> i mean that's what the way he describes i think his his observations of gurney as a leader is that he is an extremely committed man and his men follow his example mm. and that's when Turek reinforces it then don't falter they followed you this far why are you gonna it's i love that I, it's funny to to think of the leader's position of going oh i'm doing a good thing by letting them choose and they might be going he's abandoning us right? Yeah. You exactly. have your perspective. You don't have theirs. And Tuik spots that right away. And he says, don't, don't falter here for these men. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, he pledges his sword. It's, it's really cool. And what a way to drive that home at the end of this chapter when the, the Atreides training is brought back up. We care for our own. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have oh, this right, scene, right. this scene of, of Gurney essentially playing a song for one of his dying men, like yeah. the man's request. And I think it really drives home how Gurney was never going to be able to leave them, even if he wanted to. Absolutely. I think that's I think a great he cares point. cares too much. Yeah. That's Matai. Shout out to Matai. He, he succumbs to his wounds and they sing uh, My Woman, I think it's called. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, even as we die, we want to think about women. No shit. <laughs> <laughs> but um, a great way to end the chapter is now we are 73. Yes, indeed. Right. Oh, 73 men. That's so That's fucked. Uh, 74 to 73. We're dwindling rapidly. <laughs> dwindling. <laughs> All right. So we're heading to chapter 29 now. Yes, indeed. This has got a doozy of an intro. So have fun. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking suck me with it. You somehow knew. It's uh, my, fuck. it's my prescience. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely and- not just knowing the pattern of what four chapters. <laughs> <laughs> not having a not enfeebled memory enough to know that to, 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 I can count a little bit. <laughs> Fucking brag, why don't you? Jesus. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Chapter 29. Buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> Family life of the royal Kresh, I think I'm saying that right, is difficult for many people to understand, but I shall try to give you a capsule view of it. My father had only one real friend, I think. That was Count Hasimir Fenring, the genetic uh, eunuch and one of the deadliest fighters in the Imperium. The Count, a dapper and ugly little man, brought a new slave concubine to my father one day, and I was dispatched by my mother to spy on the proceedings. All of us spied on my father as a matter of self-protection. One of the slave concubines permitted my father under the Bene Gesserit Guild Agreement could not, of course, bear a royal successor, but the intrigues were constant and oppressive in their similarity. We became adept, my mother and sisters and I, at avoiding subtle instruments of death. 
It may seem a dreadful thing to say, but I'm not at all sure my father was innocent in all these attempts. A royal family is not like other families. Here was a new slave concubine then, red-haired like my father, willowy and graceful. She had a dancer's muscles, and her training obviously had included neuro-enticement. My father looked at her for a long time as she postured unclothed before him. Finally, he said, she is too beautiful. We will save her as a gift. You have no idea how much consternation this restraint created in the royal creche. So subtlety and self-control were, after all, the most deadly threats to us all. Hmm. From In My Father's House by the Princess Irulan. Wow. That's a lot. That is a lot. It's a lot. Again, back to what you were talking about, the idea of control. Indeed. Uh, Self-control. Recurring theme. Uh, uh, Self-control as a virtue and self-control as something that may cause others to consider it a threat to themselves. And that just tells you about the world of Dune, doesn't it? That somebody's self-control over not taking this beautiful nude woman would be viewed not as a virtue, but more as a threat. Right. That's Dune. (laughs) (laughs) That is Dune. Because it, it implies that they are less corruptible than people think. Right. And corruption is a weapon. Deception is a weapon. Right. Right. Interesting. So we return to Paul and Jessica here, Matthew. And they're about to strike camp and set out. And uh, that's when Paul starts to contemplate the quiet of the desert, right? The stillness. I believe he says it could be a good life here. Interesting to think that, isn't it, for the young Master Paul? <laughs> that maybe this planet is something that can be adapted to, can maybe even be conquered. Hmm. Even be conquered. I like that because that's still that Imperium thinking. Conquered. That's true. Right? What do you mean by conquered? Mm. I mean, I think it was, I'm trying to remember the early, the, some of the earlier chapters, the dialogue, but wasn't Paul also talking about the idea of terraforming the planet? He was. Yeah. Like he was somewhat in favor of that idea. The idea of like taming the planet of Arrakis and making it something livable, making it have its own water. Um, Better? I think maybe, right. Yeah. Right. Right. And I think that idea is still probably rattling around in his brain a little bit. Yeah. Benny Jezra Axum, the mind can go either direction under stress, toward positive or towards negative, on or off. Think of it as a spectrum whose extremes are in consciousness at the negative and in hyper-consciousness at the positive end. The way the mind will lean under stress is strongly influenced by training. Mm. That is excellent. The idea that unconsciousness is bad and or hyperconsciousness is good. They say you can go in either direction. This is a, this yeah. is quite this has a very psychedelic feel to it, doesn't it? This idea of in a hyper or expanded consciousness is a positive thing when pushed to the extreme of stress versus going unconscious. That's not as good. I find that wild because you would almost think that gets back to the man-animal dichotomy present in this book. Unconsciousness is, is instinct, is reaction. Is, is, you think there's a lot of merit in that. But here they're almost saying, no, no, no. The unconscious, the unthinking is not good. Hyperconsciousness is where it's at, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you got to become hyperconscious. You got to try the hyperconsciousness. It's really sweet. <laughs> it's that limitless pill from that Bradley Cooper movie nobody saw. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. 
I did not see that movie. Did you? <laughs> I like, did. Yeah, you're one of the ones. I'm one you're of the, the ones. you're the one guy at Blockbuster. You picked it up. <laughs> <laughs> Looks pretty good. Early aggressive popcorn. That's awesome. I mean, Bradley's killing it right now. He can't do anything wrong. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, this is uh, a lot of contemplation from Paul. A lot of considering. You know, uh, one could be alone out here. You, you had a, you. I don't know. Did you? You didn't. Oh no, you didn't mention that one could be alone out here. She thought without fear of someone behind you, without fear of the hunter. That has to be almost a peaceful thought in the desert. You're coming from a house Atreides, which you had to look for daggers and poison everywhere. There, that doesn't exist in the desert. There is no actual malice. There's no fear of the hunter, so to speak. And I know, yes, you could argue the Harkonnens. But they're not a part of the desert either. They're interlopers. They're looking for you. That's different. But just this idea of living peaceably in a place where you don't have to look over your shoulder. And all these royal types do is look over their shoulder. They have to by design. <laughs> right. All the time. That's their, their entire life is intrigue after intrigue. And this is mostly just window dressing. These next few moments, they, they consider that water has flowed through here. They can tell by the way the land looks. There's a glaring white to it. Um, they consider the stars as the sun dips below the horizon. And uh, the color and the coal-colored shadows spread across the thick collapse of night-blotted deserts. The peering up at the stars. It's beautiful out here, at night especially. Right, right. Also, the, the, the overpowering smell of cinnamon on the wind out here, which yes. is the smell of the melange. It is. And, uh, you know, that's earlier when they, were, when they were back at, I believe, Arakeen. One of the things they talked about was this idea. Well, no, was it Arakeen? I don't recall. But they were discussing this idea of spice being in everything. You can't avoid it. And, boy, they're, they're really understanding that now. It's on the wind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In the desert, it's everywhere. And this is where we decide that we're going to plant the thumper. Yes. So they plant the thumper. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here. The overall idea of a thumper is to plant it. And I didn't realize this until this chapter um, because they've talked about a thumper before. It's been mentioned before, but we haven't seen one in use and we haven't seen how it's used at all till now. The idea is that you plant it down where you are walking away from. Yes. So that it draws the worm away from you. Because exactly. you want something to, yeah, to draw the worm away, and it's pulling the worm in the direction that you're not going. <laughs> right, and that's why it has a timer. It's a 30-minute delay. So uh, you to give you some space. Yeah. To give you the space, because if, <laughs> if you turn the thumper on and, and it starts immediately, well, that's a wrap. <laughs> so what we do is we plant the thumper down, and then we start walking into the desert. And after about a half an hour... So for a half an hour, you have to endure this walking without a rhythm, as we were talking about earlier, and in exhausting yourself in the open, hot sun, trying to suck all the water out of your body, desert. <laughs> exactly. And then that thumper starts with a boom, boom, and it's rhythmic. And I want people to consider this for just a second. We talked about searching for the rhythm almost instinctively. We talked about you know, when, how difficult it is to think of a song when you're currently listening to another song. When you try to think of a song you can't remember and you're listening to a current song, it's very difficult to do because your mind wants to just gravitate. All those neural pathways of that song you're listening to are just firing and just driving your mind that direction. It's very difficult. So <laughs> imagine 
the difficulty, which we've expressed in great detail, of walking without rhythm, how hard that would be, how it goes against everything you naturally do in terms of the way you move your body. And now the thumper starts, and it's essentially a gigantic metronome. And yeah. So I start clapping, one, da, da, da. And I'm like, okay, walk without rhythm. And you're going you're gonna to start falling in footstep with the thumper. And you can't do that because that's the, that's the cue for the worm. Uh, this, is, this, is, this, is nat- this is something. This is not natural sounds. This is an unnatural sound. Not, when I say natural, I mean natural to the desert. A rhythmic right. noise is not natural to the desert. Yeah. Syncopation is natural to the desert. But anything with a rhythmic jaunt about it is going to be bagged by a worm. <laughs> exactly. Makes you wonder just why they are so particularly mm. territorial. Right, right. Yes. Why they seek that out so aggressively. Indeed. I'm sure we'll know some more by the end of the book. Ooh, I am very curious about that one. <laughs> Uh, a cute little line by Jessica that I like. She says, the night is a tunnel, a hole into tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> that's that cool. A great line. That's, that's such a psychedelic. It's funny, as I think a little bit more about this book of the psychedelics of the 60s, the idea of like, yo, man, the night's a tunnel, it's a hole into tomorrow. Right? <laughs> Expand <laughs> to your mind. Expand hyper-consciousness, man. We're not. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we must transcend our animal primacy. <laughs> uh, we must walk without rhythm. Did you ever hear that tune? Walk without that. That uh, Chris Walken was in the video. Oh yes, yeah, it's, I've it's, seen that. It's I love. I now you can listen to it and and, and really enjoy. It. Walk without rhythm, and you won't attract a worm. <laughs> and it's Christopher Walken like flying on the ceiling and dancing because he was like a renowned dancer back in the day. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't in it just because he's kooky. He's actually a great dancer. But uh, he reminds, uh, Paul reminds Jessica that they must walk without rhythm. Watch how I do it. This is how the Fremen walk the sand. And he gives her a demonstration. Step, drag, drag, step, step, wait, drag, step. And the idea here is to, the idea here is to avoid rhythmic or repetition. We tend towards patterns. That's another thing we tend towards, right? We yeah. have to, we have to, it's going to be difficult. The muscles will protest. <laughs> I mean, shit, that's even what we're looking for when we point our satellites to space, looking for sounds, looking for, you know, evidence of alien life. We're looking for patterns. Like, that's what we're actually looking for because that's inherently unnatural. There's not going to be a repeating pattern that goes on and on and on exactly the same way unless that was made by something with intelligence. Ah, that reminds me of contact, the idea of prime numbers. Yeah. You're going, ooh, yeah. that means intelligence or something, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yep, uh, there's a moment here where they say the pounding continued and they found difficulty avoiding the rhythm of it in their stride. Absolutely. But now it's pounding. Now they're walking across the desert. Put yourself in their shoes for a minute. Walking, and I believe it's nighttime, right? It's nighttime yes, here. it is night. They, they only travel at night. They have to. Too hot otherwise. So they're traveling at night. This thumper starts banging on the desert, making all this noise, banging on the desert ground. They're trying to avoid falling into the metronome lull that is a thumper and they just keep pushing on step drag step drag all the while their ears searching for that hiss because that was the noise they heard before this hiss yeah you got to imagine that 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 hiss is so distinct and so strong because that's the sound of sand parting and sliding over each other Mm. as this gigantic worm pushes past i mean the idea of something being big enough to plow through sand fast enough to make a continuous hissing sound Mm. is so terrifying what what a what a crazy thing to imagine too 
Well, one of the things we really never understand as people experiencing life on this planet is, or very few people do, right, is this idea of something happening that just never happens that would sound a certain way. We can't really imagine what it would sound like for a spaceship-sized creature to pull itself out of the sand and what that tumbling sand would sound like. We can only think we can imagine it, right? And and only if you experience some sort of natural disaster can you really wrap your head around what you would perceive in those moments, what it would sound like, what... What what is it? What would it look like? What would that visually and even visual? I, I guess you can, I guess you can computer generate these models and and create movies about natural disasters and use CGI and and theorize what it might sound like. But we don't really know, do we? No, not truly. It's cool. It makes you, it really taps the imagination. But that hissing sound is coming. It's approaching, spreading across the night behind them. They turned their heads as they walked, saw the mound of the coursing worm. And now emotion sets in, Matthew. Now imagine you're out there, you're tired, your muscles are rebelling against the idea of walking without rhythm. You're doing your best to avoid the thumper rhythm so you don't get picked. Now you know a worm is inbound, and now you're in the middle of nowhere. There is no escarpment to crawl across. There are no rock faces. Now you have to not lose your shit because you see this thing moving through the sand you have to be thinking oh god (laughs) please not like this (laughs) not like this and you gotta Uh, keep moving (laughs) and i do love how after a certain point um you know they start they start moving faster still trying to keep moving without rhythm and they finally hit a place where Jessica just screams, run, Paul, yeah, run. <laughs> yeah. And they have to just start going because the thing is getting too close, going too fast, heading straight for them. Um, and this is just such a, a great scene of them hauling absolute ass to the rock escarpment that's like 200 meters away. Yep. Um, and then because of the frantic you know, motion of what they're doing, we don't really think about it, but it says... A thin pole jutted from the sand ahead of them. They passed it, saw another. Jessica's mind failed to register on the poles until they were passed. That's Just excellent. as I think, right, as I think we don't even notice it either, but that's a sign of civilization. Correct. Poles mounted out in the desert? Like, okay, you have officially touched on where other people are. Yes. Um, but, but they are being pursued so, so <laughs> doggedly by this worm that they don't really have time to think about that. Right. That's a wild thing to consider that, I, I like how that's that's very much for the reader, and it and it's something that it's almost like the reader gets a little something Jessica doesn't because it doesn't quite register with her in that moment of insanity. Mm-hmm. Right, because she she's in the middle of a life and death run. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> we're we are we are in a, we're sitting pretty, man. I don't know about you, but my foot's up right see- now. <laughs> Dude, I haven't seen a worm in days. I'm fine. It's <laughs> on Earth Rome the other day. It didn't scare me one single solitary bit. I saw a blue. Crush it. <laughs> Crush it like a sadistic psychopath. I, I saw. Care. I saw a blue jay jack that thing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, where the dunes began, perhaps fifty meters away at the foot of a rock beach, a silver gray curve broached from the desert, sending rivers of sand and dust cascading all around. It lifted higher, resolved into a giant questing mouth. It was a round black hole with edges glistening in the moonlight. 
The mouth snaked toward the narrow crack where Paul and Jessica huddled. Cinnamon yelled in their nostrils. Moonlight flashed from crystal teeth. Back and forth, the great mouth wove. Paul stilled his breathing. Jessica crouched, staring. Whoa, baby. Shai Halud, the big worm. There it is, Matthew. In all its heavenly glory. This is the one. The one they get to see up fucking close. Cinnamon yelled in their nostrils. What a great descriptor. Yes. And dude, on, uh, on the next page, what I love that Paul starts to think about. Yes. Cinnamon. Cinnamon. The smell of it flooded across him. What has the worm to do with the spice melange? He mm-hmm. asked himself. And he remembered Liet Kynes betraying a veiled reference to some association between worm and spice. Now we have another clue that, I mean, these things yes. reek of spice. Yes. Um, that is the overwhelming singular smell that comes out of their mouth. <laughs> so... There's some connection. We still don't right. quite know what that connection is, but we know there is one. Yeah, and, and, and he changes. I love that he goes into, put yourself in their shoes yet again, I ask you, listener. This thing erupts from the sand. The mouth described as this black hole and crystal teeth and, and just this massive thing that you can't even wrap your head around. This maw glistening in the moonlight. And Paul, first, before he gets analytical, thinks he feels elation. That's awesome. <laughs> Have you ever been on a whale watch? No, actually. I went on a whale watch out of Hyannis, which is in Cape, in the Cape, Cape Cod. I'm in Massachusetts here. And we saw, this was years, and this is probably 23, 4, 5 years ago. And boy, did we see some serious humpback whale action. It was impressive. That is it, was, it was wild. You, elation is a great way to describe it because there's a bit of fear there in the event that that thing crashed into the boat. They don't. They're peaceable. But there is a sense of fear there. And it's like Paul. He has this sense of fear knowing, I think I'm safe, but wow, look at this thing, elation. And then like you said, perhaps it's that, could it be <laughs> the Mentat training, Matthew, that sends him instantly into analytical mode and consideration mode and deduction mode about, wait a minute, let's start making connections here. A clue. Ah. Yeah. Dude, the word that jumps to mind for me too is uh, sublime in the, in like mm. the very classical sense of the word. Um, that something is inextricable from being beautiful and, and terrifying at the same time. Like so awe inspiring that it, you know, like it's like when you're watching a gigantic cloud full of lightning, a big black cloud rolling in on you. Like it's incredible looking sure. and kind of just amazing and beautiful, but also it's terrifying. It could kill you. <laughs> like it could <laughs> ruin, it could ruin the land all around you. I can play the guitar like a, Oh wait, wrong sublime. Oh gotcha. yeah. Sublime. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, that's a great way to describe it, man. It's, it's, nature tends to do that to us, doesn't it? We are so enamored by it. And you and I have talked about this on the podcast before, but we've, on other podcasts before, but we talked about this idea of our romantic, uh, the way we idolize it, <laughs> our, our romantic idealizing of nature and how it's just can be so relentless, but without malice. So right. deadly and without without care. Yeah, yeah. It's not it's not cruel. It's just it just is. Just is. It's surviving like anything else. Mm. 
But um, did I back it up? Oh yeah, what's the word to do? You already read all that stuff, and he they still hear the thumper, and then they go, "Wait a minute, another thumper!" Yes, that pulls away the worm. Yes, the worm starts seeking it out. And at first, they think they've been saved, that, but maybe somebody else saw them. Maybe somebody else put out a thumper to, to draw this worm away from them. But then the thought occurs to them that <laughs> maybe they were just calling a worm. Maybe they, maybe they weren't helping us at all. Think about that. Dude, what's <laughs> fascinating about that is that it implies a level of domestication to the worms, which right. you're like, no fucking way that thing's been domesticated, right? Like, there's no way in hell. Look at it. It's, it's, it's the biggest thing in the fucking universe. It can eat entire factories. Nobody has put a leash on that. That's not happening. But uh, it, you, you, I, it makes you, me wonder. Yeah, you're telling me this small, I don't know, uh, Carillion Corvette-sized Star Warship that flies around under the sand is that big? <laughs> Somebody you mean call- this cruise ship that eats people? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, an answer lay poised at the edge of his awareness but refused to come. He had a vision in his mind of something to do with the telescoping barbed sticks in their packs, the master hooks. This is Paul to a T. Yeah. He has this idea that he knows what this is. And this says so much about him in his destiny and what he's tied to and in his training that in his awareness, just this idea of, I feel like I know what this is. I think I understand. This is connected. The master hooks are connected. This is connected. He's seeing it. It's it's he's drawing lines. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's already enough in front of him. He's already had enough clues and he pays, like you said, he pays enough attention to start to be able to deduce these connections. Their attention is brought back to the polls, Matthew. Yes, the poles we pass, there are more of them. Mm. Up the cliff they go, and they follow the guide poles until the ledge dwindled to a narrow lip at the mouth of a dark crevasse, and into the darkness they go. So they go willingly into a very dark crevasse, and they can't see anything. They're, they're searching for purchase with their hands. <laughs> they're like, where, whoa, this is terrible. What's so see. funny like the worm, the worm scene is obviously like kind of terrifying in this book. Of course, but I was I was kind of equally scared in this section of the book because I was like imagining the idea of being on a I don't know four or five inch wide ledge in right. utter blackness and just having to scoot along carefully edge by edge just to to even feel where you're going. That's terrifying. Absolutely. Uh, we get we get a sense of Jessica's uh, awareness here where she notes that the shallow, the steps are shallow and even, and she goes, man-made beyond a doubt. Yes. There's no way these aren't man-made, and I love that. That's an awareness that not everyone gets. Jessica gets it. Yeah. And then they realize it's a beautiful place. But uh, somebody, somebody says something, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> somebody crashes this little party. Hmm. Most intruders here regret finding the Fremen. (laughs) (laughs) You found us, bitch. Oops. (laughs) Oopsie. The the, the, the John McClane oops. Oops. You found us. (laughs) Oops. Think I'm fucking stupid, Hans. (laughs) Please do not run, intruders. If you run, you'll only waste your body's water. And that's when Jessica is like, oh, God, they want our flesh. <laughs> now, I don't know, maybe we'll find this out. We must find this out. 
But there's a, a, a quote from one of the Fremen at the end here where he says, make it quick still, get their water and let's be on our way. We've little enough time before dawn. I was like, is that Stilgar? Is mm. that who I'm supposed to believe? Still mm. Stilgar? Because think- if that's the case, we have a Fremen who would recognize them. Right. Indeed. That is a so, fine observation. You will get an answer to that soon, I'm sure. Oh, uh, damn, baby. Damn, I want to know. Mm. Well, there's that, sir. It's a great chapter. Yeah, it is. It is. To finally see the worm up close in the way that we do. That is something I've been anticipating this entire book. Indeed. And, and what a great... It did not disappoint. The description did not disappoint. No, Their reaction the to it, the way they feel, the way it's the way it's visually described and the way they feel about it is excellent. Oh, and dude, I, f- I forgot about this. I'm so glad I just remembered before we moved on. Um, I did a little bit of quick math on, on the worm because the only numbers we get mentioned about it is that Paul <laughs> says the mouth is 80 meters in diameter. So <laughs> when you break that down, that's 240 feet. And to give an idea of what that's like, I want everybody to imagine a full-size yellow school bus. That is five of those, end to end to end. Five full-size, full, long-ass-size school buses. That's how fucking wide its mouth is. Right, and that's what, that's that's crazy. So another thing you can do is basically think of a football field. Now put <laughs> it up in the air and turn it towards you and shave 20 yards off it. Yikes, yeah. <laughs> that's really big, man. That's real big. <laughs> Yeesh. To say Wait. nothing of the whole, circ- the entire circumference and how just big that is. Yeah, that's just uh. the mouth. That I mean, that's like you said, that's why, what have we seen? We've seen entire harvesting operations go under because they yeah, go into the swallow. Tr- yeah. <laughs> Yeesh. Damn. All right. Damn. Chapter 30. This Fremen religious adaptation, then, is the source of what we now recognize as, quote, the pillars of the universe, end quote, whose kizara tafweed are among us all with signs and proofs and prophecy. They bring us the Arakeen mystical fusion, whose profound beauty is typified by the stirring music built on the old forms, but stamped with the new awakening. Who has not heard and been deeply moved by, quote, the old man's hymn? I drove my feet through a desert whose mirage fluttered like a host. Voracious for glory, greedy for danger, I roamed the horizons of Al-Kulab, watching time-level mountains in its search and its hunger for me. And I saw the sparrows swiftly approach, bolder than the onrushing wolf. They spread in the tree of my youth. I heard the flock in my branches and was caught on their beaks and claws from Arrakis awakening by the Princess Irulan. Matthew? Yes, indeed. Are you okay after reading chapter 30? Dude, it is a fucking bummer. It's such a fucking bummer. It's a bummer, man. I did not expect Kynes to die. I really didn't. I I was totally... I was totally suckered into that that naive belief of like, ah, it looks like he's down, but he's, you know, he's cool. He's one of the main, you know, characters, one of the main Fremen. He's going to be coming back. Like, obviously, that's going to be a part of the story. No. No. Fucking gone. It's such a bummer because he, 
the last time we saw him, he was helping Jessica and Paul escape through the tunnels. And he's like, no, I'm a plantologist. Let me talk to them. And now he's in the desert with no still suit and water. Yeah. And, and, and what sucks about that is we knew he could be in trouble because of what Baron, the Baron was saying, which is this guy's got to go. Yeah. This guy's got to go because, because he, he, he went against us. He went against us and we got to keep this clean. And even though he said that, you're still like, yeah, good luck. We know kinds is fierce. But if you kind of think you're going to go parlay with them, you're screwed, dude. They're going to overwhelm you and throw you in the desert. I just imagine them ripping his still suit off, taking his water, putting him in an ornithopter, pushing him out and saying, bye, sucker. Brutal. And just the irony of the desert killing our man, Liette. Oh, God, I hate it. I mean, I love it as a writer. It's written well. I'm just so bummed about it. That's the thing. Like, I both feel like what an, an incredible send off, like a final scene of Liet Kynes. And then sure. also, on the other hand, just like you said, the, the horrific irony of it's the desert that consumes him. Like, mm. damn, that is brutal. And I mean, and the way that we find out who this is, you know, the chapter begins with the man crawled across a dune top. <laughs> and that is, so we don't know who this is for, you know, almost a full page. And then as he stands up and looks across the desert, all, all fucking beat to hell and dying, he says, I am Liet Kynes, addressing yep. himself to the empty horizon. His voice was a horse caricature of the strength that had known. I am his imperial majesty's planetologist, he whispered, planetary ecologist for Arrakis. I am steward of this land. So badass. Like, saying it to no one, but just saying it for himself, reminding himself of who he is. <laughs> and then a moment later, he thinks, I am sure of this sand. <laughs> <laughs> Steward of this fucking sand. <laughs> oh, God. And uh, this is a pretty wild chapter, man. This is a guy hallucinating at the end, hearing his father's voice, his father telling him lessons that he told him as a boy, stuff that he absolutely knows, reminding him of things, and maybe him trying to glean some insight into it but we know that uh he's taking it to his grave sadly ah yes indeed yes indeed it is you know what this reminded me of too and i I could be off on this maybe maybe it's just a, a, a a visual similarity but this makes me think so much of the scene in The Empire Strikes Back of Luke alone on Hoth and <laughs> Obi-Wan appearing to him. I was like, did they, did George Lucas take from this scene the, the idea of being stranded in a wasteland and uh, uh, you know, uh, an important figure reappearing and, and speaking to you? He definitely borrowed from this man quite a bit, no question. Oh, but that sure. is a great comparison. I never even considered it. Yeah, a better funny, fate but... for Luke, though. <laughs> <laughs> much. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad there wasn't a, an animal with an air conditioning for guts in this fucking horrible desert. Yeah. We learn about a little bit about this father that's speaking to him, so to speak. And uh, the highest function of ecology is understanding consequences, it says. And he, he recounts about how his father died in a, in a cave-in at a place called Plaster Basin. So his father died doing this stuff too. Yeah, yeah, died in the desert. Mm. Um, I, it's funny because... There's such a, there's almost like a, a mocking cruelty, right? A little bit, even though at first you're like, oh, wow, his dad's going to be there with him sort of in his mind. Could be a hallucination type of thing. It doesn't really matter other than maybe he doesn't have to face death alone, so to speak. But it almost starts to get him angry. It, 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 it's mocking. It's relentless in the way it's talking to him, right? 
It's like Vampire Hunter D's hand talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he even even says he's like he's just lecturing me again. He always mm. lectured me. He would never stop. Um, and, and he even says, "Why does he keep harping on the same yes. subject? I knew yes. that before I was ten. You know, all of these things. Because what we really get is a lot of his father explaining ecological concepts and yes. axioms and and stating these things and. It is interesting because it's like, well, these are things that Kynes already knows. <laughs> right. I mean, for one, this is probably a delusion of his own mind. So, yes, everything he knows, he knows. Um, yeah. But but no, I find it interesting that in his hour of death, <laughs> in the final moments that he has in the desert, he is thinking about the nature of the desert, the desert's ecology. So the question becomes, as a reader, Matthew, what are we supposed to glean from this? Or is this... Is this largely beautiful prose filler to sort of get us to his eventual demise? Did you glean anything from this? I, I have a couple notes that I liked. I, I'm, I'm not sure if you felt like that or, or was just like, this is, uh, this is some poetic way in which we send off this character who, who made his bones as an, eco- as an ecologist, right? A planetologist, as it were. Mm, yeah. No, I think there's... We get, I would say, a surprisingly good amount of information from yeah. what his father says about I, the desert, about about plant life, animal life, people. People's um, the big one. I'm glad you said that. You must cultivate ecological literacy among the people. I like that yeah. that's something that came to Kinds from his father. And we see that Kinds got to a space in his life where he was basically Fremen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How, what better way to cultivate? He dances with Fremen. What, yeah, what what better way to cultivate literacy among the people than to understand in in people what people the fremen don't need to have ecological literacy they they're fluent as it were right at least for arrakis that's for sure but if you're an imperial planetologist you have a lot to offer the imperium because of your time with the fremen and creating that ecological literacy ecological is 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 tantamount to survival right yeah no, the way, like, so this is a bit of a long paragraph, but I think it's one of the more important ones. Hit me. Um, and this is his father, you know, speaking to him, you know, his, his mind's version of his father. Sure. Um, the Arakeen environment built itself into the evolutionary pattern of native life forms. How strange that so few people ever looked up from the spice long enough to wonder at the near ideal nitrogen, oxygen, CO2 balance being maintained here in the absence of large areas of plant cover. Mm -hmm. The energy sphere of the planet is there to see and understand. A relentless process, but a process nonetheless. There is a gap in it, then something occupies that gap. Science is made up of so many things that appear obvious after they are explained. I knew the little maker was there deep in the sand long before I ever saw it. (laughs) Now, a couple of things there. For one, I I think it's really interesting. His father pointing out, like, People think of Arrakis as a fucking wasteland hellscape, that it's some awful, unlivable place, and the only people who live there have some have awful, hard, scrabble lives. And his father, the scientist, is pointing out, uh, actually, the elements, the, the oxygen, all of the things here are in perfect harmony. Like, this is... It, it, it is a planet that sustains life. It, it's a life that's different from other places, but it sustains its its own ecosystem very, very well and very sure. efficiently. It's very balanced. Um, so it, for me, that already implies that like it's a much more livable planet than people think. Um, and then he also talks about at the very end there, 
the little makers, <laughs> the little makers that have something to do with the spice. That's one of the biggest things we, we get to learn about in this chapter is the, the small makers, the small worms that have something to do with with spices creation underground. Because, I mean, that's indeed it's what literally kills our boy. <laughs> yeah, the pre-spice mass. Exactly. Like, it's not spice yet, but it's being made into spice by little makers. Little makers. <laughs> like Santa's little elves making <laughs> sweet spice. And I like the, uh, I, I, first of all, that's the great, a great paragraph. And I like how this continues into how Liet's father, who's never quite named, I don't think, has this optimistic idea, which is men and their works have been a disease on the surface of the planets before now. Meaning... I, I think this can be, uh, we can change things. Like, yeah, there's a very optimistic feeling about it. Nature tends to compensate for disease, to remove or encapsulate them, to incorporate them into the system in her own way. And while this is happening, the hawks and things are starting to gather around. And, uh, and Kynes is running out of strength here, isn't he? He's literally dying. Yeah, absolutely. Dude, those are some, uh, some mean ass birds when they start just. <laughs> Just hovering overhead, <laughs> even walking over to you while you're alive. Just like, ah, any minute now, though. Any I, minute. What I was thinking about that is what's crazy is think of how many times the hawks have seen this. Exactly. Like the hawks instincts, they, they use the word hawk. I, I, I imagine more like carrion eaters, but, you know, hawk I think of as a, as a prey bird going after living things. But regardless, these hawks have seen so many people get caught in the open desert that they probably are distinctly aware of exactly when he's going to die. Yeah. Right. It's like yeah. instinct to them. They know exactly when the movement stops. All right. Time to eat. Time to eat. <laughs> yeah. Time to go to town. Cause you don't have time. There's a, a bunch of carrion eaters in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of this stuff. I, I, I'm not sure going through all these giant walls of text. will I don't know if that's necessary for this, but it is a, it is a fascinating chapter and and just all of the shit going through this guy's head yeah but and dude oh go ahead i was just gonna say but the bummer of this chapter outside of his death is him thinking the fremen must be near yeah surely they're near surely they're seeing the birds surely they know and i love that that's that shows a level of understanding of this place surely they see the birds they know when birds gather someone's caught out yeah yeah. And dude, what like what an interesting uh, like we just left the, the the chapter of Tuek, you know, shooting down this idea that the, that the Fremen are much of anything, certainly mm. nothing to to be worried about to where we get back to to Kynes alone in the open desert and going, well, obviously other Fremen are going to see this. Like he's that confident. Sure, sure. Like he thinks that there he, there are enough Fremen out here for this to be this little situation to be noticed. Um, and I think that says a lot more about what he understands about the Fremen and probably about how many there are. Yep. Um, yep. And dude, I got it. We got to talk about this. I think the single line that jumped out at me more than anything else in this entire chapter, I highlighted it right away. I was like, holy shit, that's, that's gotta mean something, um, is the, the point where his father says, no more terrible disaster could befall your people than for them to fall into the hands of a hero. <laughs> I that, had that too. Dude, I yeah, was like, too, oh, so yeah. you mean Paul? <laughs> so you mean Paul? Because that's where we're headed. He's the fucking Wadiv. 
<laughs> like, oh shit, that is uh that makes me wonder. <laughs> that really makes me wonder. That seems like an omen. What I like about that is how Kynes says reading my mind. So he was thinking that. Well, obviously, I think that line probably connects what you've been suggesting, which is this is of clearly I mean, clearly it's all in his mind anyway, but that's almost like a uh, like a literal realization that that's the case. Reading my mind, yeah, of course, I am your mind. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the messages already have been sent to my CH villages. He thought nothing could stop them. If the Duke's son is alive, they'll find him and protect him as I have commanded. They may have they may discard the woman, his mother, but they'll save the boy. Do you think? Do you think he regrets it now? I mean, there's there's the obvious sense of. Maybe he regrets it because it just got him fucking killed. And exactly. He's stranded. Exactly. Yep. But do you think he regrets helping them because of what that might mean for the Fremen's future? No more terrible disaster could befall your people than for them to fall into the hands of a hero, his father said. Um, I think it is an interesting idea because you could get cute with the idea of what they mean by hero, right? True. I'm not sure. Is Paul? It, it, it depends on the path he's going to take. But I do like the idea of falling into the hands of a hero. You know, it, it, to call it a disaster for your people is interesting because what you do is you almost start to divert all of your resources to the one, to all the attention, all the adulation to the one instead of everyone else, right? Like, right. let's lift this guy up on this pedestal and. And that's dangerous. That's dangerous insofar as what if he doesn't live up to it? What if he turns out to be something else? What if he falls to corruption? What if he, right? I, I, I think it's putting too much of your, of too, too much thought into the, into the idea of hopefulness, right? It, that's another thing I, you, you could almost call it like hope personified as a hero, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Hmm. No, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good point. That's an interesting way of putting it. That that maybe at this point Kynes doesn't quite regret that aspect yet, thinking that the boy the boy can fulfill something, I don't know, other than just being like a god savior. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, you you it, it is yes, it, it heroes I I think used in this context are dangerous insofar as that it can change the thinking of everybody to focus too much on the one thing instead of everything around them, right? The disaster for your people is falling into the hands of a hero because then they, they almost descend into, you know, into, into this group that just is, is, you know, lifting up the hero. You want them to be their own people, to look around them, not always up at this idealized version of what could be rescuing them. It's not... It seems impractical. One of the things you, I always think about when I think about the Fremen is I think about what Jessica even said a chapter ago, which is this, their practicality, the way they have to be immediate in their decision. They can't, they have to be able to take care of themselves, I think, if I want to really dumb this down, versus allowing a person to come in and take care of them. Your, yeah. your people are robbed of their autonomy if they put all of their eggs into the hero basket, so to speak. They need to maintain yeah. their autonomy. They need to maintain their agency, especially in a place like Arrakis, because if the hero goes away, they'll be lost. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. You know? And if all the things that their culture has have put together and learned over generations to to survive, if that's erased by one guy being the singular, you know, god leader, <laughs> then <laughs> then that would leave them without their knowledge. Indeed. And we talked about comfort, right? Our propensity for comfort. Yeah. That's 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 something right there. Right? We talked about that on this, didn't we? Or I'm I'm not thinking the X-Files episode, am I? Um, I'm not, I'm we to talked about, we, we talked about, yeah. Oh, you know, no. Cause it was a chapter heading. This idea of, of going into comfort and getting soft, right? Oh yes. Yeah. That yeah, is yeah. <laughs> the two recordings in one day. This is what happens. <laughs> so the idea of if you fall into the hands of a hero, the hero is like, Oh, I'm going to take care of you. It's that, it's that great Pink Floyd song, mother, which is, you know, mama's gonna put all of her fears into you. Just this idea of like mama protecting you from things maybe you shouldn't always be protected from. Maybe you should experience the pain and the discomfort of the world. And and maybe maybe mama shouldn't put all, put all her fears into you. Maybe she should let you sort of grow up on your own and, and parent you a different way. Or in this particular case, you know, if the hero, if the hero does, if, if you fall into the hands, that's the language very specific of the hero, you're kind of saying... I guess we're going to allow ourselves to be soft a little bit. And right. that's not good. We, <laughs> that's terrible in the Arrakis. There's no such thing as being soft in Arrakis. It doesn't exist. Not being soft and alive, anyway. <laughs> that's a good point. If you want to be soft and dead, you'll be a delicious meal for the hawks. <laughs> yummy, yummy. <laughs> oh, boy. It's a great quote, man. And then also, the, one of the other the, the lines that I, I jumped out at me from this, um, the, it's the very last one, really. Yeah, then, as, awesome. his planet, as his planet killed him, it occurred to Kynes that his father and all the other scientists were wrong, that the most persistent principles of the universe were accident and error. Hell yeah. Even the hawks could appreciate these facts. Indeed. <laughs> That's uh, so such good. a good line. Like yeah, nothing, because, nothing overcomes the chaos of chance. <laughs> like nothing yes. can beat it. Yep. And in 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 it's funny because it gets this is butterfly effecty, isn't it? He makes one decision and he's face down on a pre-spice mass that's blowing up and pissing off the hawks because they thought they were going to eat. <laughs> exactly. This this idea of what if I just went with Paul? I might have lived. I might have made their journey across the desert easier. But he was thinking, well, I'm an imperial planetologist. I do have some responsibility here. But once the Baron caught word that he helped Atreides at all, he was like, he's got to go. Yeah, he's too powerful. We got to keep this insulated anyway. He's got it. He's done. He's done those. <laughs> Accident rough. and error, man. You're it's so right. Like, it's just the randomness, the, 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 the randomness of the universe. Right, right. And just... The chance of him being the planetologist at this time, at the arrival of the Atreides, at, at the ri- arrival yes. of the, the boy who fits the Muad'Dib legend, like all of just the chance encounters that have led to this moment for, for such a, like, and I think that's why this, this death has so much impact, at least for me. And like the scene is such a, like, I think we need, if you're going to kill Liet Kynes, he needs a big send off like this Indeed. moment here. Indeed. Um, because I think he is shown to be such a competent, such a strong, such a courageous person that for him to die this way is a true shock. And you're like, wow, he really was just like, he made one choice and that was it. Like that was the one, like it, it happened to be a miscalculation and now he's dead for it. Simple as that. Simple as that. Fucking brutal. Yep. Made it, made an error in judgment. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it, it tells us something about kinds a little bit, just this whole, the reason he's even here. 
is that he he didn't consider he didn't consider the Baron enough. No, right? He thought, oh, I'm just going to kind of talk my way out of it. Like he probably was thinking, uh, there's nothing to talk my way out of. He's an f- expert on the Fremen. He knows about. He's a planetologist, but you know, when it comes to high intrigue and and wondering what might happen, maybe that blind spot's what got him there. And the, just the irony of dying in the desert is is just that's that's intense, man. Yeah. Oh, poor Liet. Poor Liet. Pouring out for Liet, y'all. Pour one out, oh, boy. <laughs> Well, that concludes uh, where we're going to be at for today, my man. That is it. This is good shit. Hell yeah. So your homework for yes. episode, uh, the next episode will be chapters 31, 32, and 33. 31 starts with prophecy and prescience. How can they be put to the test? Chapter 32 heading is the Fremen were supreme in that quality, dot, dot, dot. And then the next one is my father, uh, which is 33, my father, the Padishah Emperor, was 72, yet looked no more than 35. Yes, indeed. And in my paperback, um, I believe, penguin copy of the book, the new issue, that is pages 446 through 500 on the dot. Oh, wow. Mine's 448 through 500. Ooh, weird. <laughs> mm, mine's some Kindle shit. So there you go, man. <laughs> <laughs> there we have it. That was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you guys so much. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. For information on upcoming chapters and to continue the conversation, visit us on Discord at libertystreetgeek.net slash discord. Discord.